Well, go ahead and take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. We're continuing our time in the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular this morning in the Lord's Prayer. We'll actually pray the prayer together as a people in just a moment. Um, but first, I want to think about something that the Apostle Paul said. I want to think about 2 Corinthians 11 in particular. The Apostle Paul writes there that he endured a lot of different things to make Jesus famous. And last week when we thought about the beginning, the opening line to the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus tells his followers to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We see that Paul's primary aim, Paul's primary bent in life is to make Jesus famous. He wants to make Jesus known more and more in every single thing, every single aspect of his life. He wants to make Jesus known. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, he, he writes that he endures a whole lot of different things, especially physical threats. He lists shipwrecks and 39 lashes. He, he lists getting mugged and getting beaten with robs. But the last thing that he says in 2 Corinthians 11 in this list that he gives, the last thing that he says is one that I've always found very curious. And he says, and in addition to this, he feels daily pressure from the anxiety for all the churches. And I always think about that, and I think about that because why on earth would he list that? It seems like all of the other things that he says are so much more pressing. Being beaten with rods and mugged, that seems like something that is far more pressing than anxiety, internal turmoil that he feels for the churches. And I think that there's one reason. This group of people in Corinth, they were a church, they were a group of people. The church is a group of people set apart for God's purposes. This is what the church is. They were a church and they were facing a whole lot of uh, different things. They were in a hostile environment. So they didn't, they didn't have religious freedom. They didn't have, uh, they couldn't worship wherever or whenever they wanted. They could be blacklisted in their society. They could lose their jobs. They could be persecuted or physically harmed because of what they believed. So Paul wants the churches, when he prays this for the churches, when he says this about the churches, when he says he feels anxiety for all the churches, what he wants them to be is secure. But not in the societal and physical way that we tend to think about when we think about security. When we think about security, we think of financial security, we think about installing an alarm system in our home. But Paul doesn't want them to have that sort of security. He wants them to be secure from the constant sources of what we're going to call affection stealing. He wants to be secure from this affection stealing garbage that, that permeated their world. There was a war that was going on. And if you read the Corinthian correspondence, you understand all of the things that are vying for their affections, for their desires, for their longings. The war was going on at a much deeper level than just a physical one. And so the question is, what did they desire and what did they long for? This is where we ended our time last week when we were thinking about the Lord's Prayer. What is it that stands at the heart? This question, what is it that we desire as a people? Do we desire our name to be hallowed or do we desire God's name to be hallowed? And I think the reason, the reason I think that Paul is talking about this when he's talking about the anxiety he feels for the church is because of the first four verses in 2 Corinthians 11. He says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. 
For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by, her, by his cunning, you, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you've received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He felt jealous for the Corinthians because just like the serpent deceived Eve by whispering that when she ate the fruit that was forbidden, she would, she would be like God. This is what the serpent tells her. You will be like God. And the Corinthians were losing the same war. And their thoughts were being led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ is what Paul says. They were divided. They neutered the gospel by seeking to remove its demands of humility and sacrifice. Those are two hallmarks of the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to earth. He humbled himself. He made himself lowly amongst people amongst created beings, an uncreated one. He humbled himself, and then he sacrificed his life on their behalf so that they could spend eternity with God the Father in heaven. And this is the gospel, and we as people are then called to do the same, to live lives of humility, to live lives of sacrifice, and to do anything less than that is to make allowance for our desires to be met by something other than God himself. So as I was processing this this week, as I was thinking about this, I just th- looking at the list that Paul sets forth in 2 Corinthians 11, there's, I've, I've endured nothing in my life compared to Paul. But the more I spend time in God's word, the more I know God, the more I know you, the more I talk with you all, the more I press in, the more I feel the blazing center of all things pressing in on us, the more anxiety I feel for you guys grows. It, it keeps me from sleeping at 3 a.m. It drives me to pull the car over and cry out to God at 3 p.m. Because the reality of the war, Buffalo City Church, the reality of the war is so apparent. And unfortunately, many of us are walking into this war with sticks and rocks when we need to be equipped with swords and armor. And there's a mine full of gold that stands right before us this morning, a mine full of gold. We need shovels and pickaxes, but oftentimes we're going at it with our fingernails. So last week, again, we said that the heart of the Lord's prayer, the heart of the Lord's prayer is desire. This question of desire and longing and aching. We are creatures of desire. It's simple. We're creatures that long for something. It's who God created us to be. And so this morning, as we come to this text, we're, this text pleads with us. It pleads with us to see the immense riches that are available to us in the gospel. But in order to lay hold of this, we have to unsubscribe from self and subscribe to Christ. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, this is for you. This is for you. If you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know what it means to trust Jesus. This is for you. 
You need more of him. You need to move away from self. And if you have trusted Jesus and you say, that's me, I've turned from my sin and I'm moving towards Christ, you need more of this. You need this as desperately as ever. And in order to lay hold of this, you have to part ways with everything that the world has to offer you. You have to be willing to part ways with everything the world has to offer you. I'm not talking just about a certain demographic in this room. I'm talking about literally everyone. If you've trusted Christ, or if you have not trusted Christ, you desperately need the truth of the gospel. I'm not talking just to people who have money, or who are people who are educated, who are people who have status in our society. And when I say part ways with things of this world, I mean like turn from it and run. Run as hard as you can because this is the affection-stealing garbage that Paul admonishes the Corinthians to move away from. Think to yourself, what, what is it that I can't live without? What can't you imagine having or doing in your daily life? You have to be willing to step away from it right now. And young people, young people in this room, right now we're setting the tone. If you have young kids, if you're not, if you're not yet married, or if you're married, and you're setting the tone for the rest of your life right now. By saying, there's something that I need in addition to Jesus. Seasoned people, I won't call you old, seasoned people. Seasoned people, you may find yourself in some unhealthy habits or unhealthy patterns that need to be broken this morning because you're relying on something in your day-to-day to get you through that's more than Jesus. Again, we're going at gold deposits with fingernails and we're walking into war with sticks and rocks. And there are simple indicators that that's you. There are simple indicators. Maybe you're marginally invested in a local church, or maybe you rarely read your Bible or pray, or maybe you make excuses about how hard those things are and when you'll have time. And when you're wondering why you're walking through life but bloodied and bruised, it's probably because of those things. These are disciplines that God's Word gives to us to invest in, to form us, to make us more into the image of Jesus. I think C.S. Lewis says this so brilliantly. This, is, this says it so much better than I can say. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he says this. It would seem that our, this is incredible, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it might be meant by the, by the offering of a holiday at the sea, we are too far, we are far too easily pleased. The battle you're fighting isn't a physical one. It's not against flesh and bone. It's about your desires. It's about your affections. And you don't know that you're fighting it regularly. Your preoccupation with your own pursuits is blinding you from the bottomless well of joy and satisfaction that can be found in God's person. This is is not... We're going to see how this comes out in this text. 
iPhones and houses and boats and clothing and shopping and looking good on Instagram and you're getting your business off the ground and doing all of these different things. All of these different things. Getting promotions. and These things are forming us. And here's the thing. Your desires that you have, your desires that you have aren't bad. I think sometimes we think we see things in our world and we say, yeah, I want that. I want that. That desire isn't bad. Let me just submit to you, just like Lewis says, it's just too small. It's just too small. It's not that you're, it's bad to be passionate about things in this life. It's just that our passion is too small. Understanding that you were created to have desire, longing, and to have the desire or longing met. The problem isn't that we have desires, but that they're too small. So we need to set these desires. We need to grow these desires. They need to get bigger. A desire that can only be satisfied by God himself. A desire that can be satisfied by something momentary, a possession or, or something that we can find here on earth. That is a desire that is far too small. You need to grow in your desires because when you do, you will find that it is God, only God, that can fill them. If your accounts were drained, if you lost your job, if your children despised you, if your, if your parents despised you, if you received a diagnosis of a terminal illness, if your political freedom was taken away, if your family was taken away from you, if any of these things happened to you, and I'm not joking about any of these things, I'm not exaggerating here, if any of these things were taken away from you and they cause you to despair or feel hopeless, even just a little bit, then your desires are too small. And they're not just small, they're pitily, they're pathetic. Compared to who God is, they're pitily and pathetic. The desire to grow in Christ's likeness is for the Spirit of Christ to expand our desires, to grow our desires for God Himself. Because desires can be filled with temporary things, these desires are pitily. Lewis also says this Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Friends, you will lose everything in this life. You will lose everything in this life, either by choice. Or when you come to the end of, of your life, by death. There's no way that we can hold on to the things that we desire to accumulate. If you say, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means to long after God. I don't know what it means to desire him in this way. And the same as, it's the same as desiring anything else, it's much bigger. <laughs> it's just much bigger. And Jesus tells his disciples to pray for big things, not small things. When we come to the Lord's Prayer, we see that he tells his disciples to pray for big things. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are big things. These are not small things. And the big thing from last week, that his name would be hallowed and set apart. The thing today from verse 10 that we're going to look at is that his kingdom come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's pray these verses together this morning. Let's look. You'll see him on the screen behind me. Last week we talked about reciting prayers and how this was sort of like a, a Jewish practice. This was something that happened or was assumed in Jewish life and that reciting prayers were a means of spiritual formation for the Jewish people. 
the people that were around Jesus in his day. And prayer is a discipline that is forming us in, in the way that, that is different from the world. And when we pray, we are responding both to the formation that is taking place internally because of the operation of the Spirit of Christ on us, and when we pray, we are being formed by biblically formed truths and disciplines. So prayer is both the way that we are formed and uh, the way that biblical truths form us and the way that we respond to that formation. So let's look at the screen. Let's pray this together today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the portion that we're going to look at this morning is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is verse 10 of, of Matthew chapter 6. So three key components. We're not going to get crazy here. Three things. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So first then, your kingdom come. Why does Jesus tell his followers to pray this? Again, you'll note immediately out of the gate that this is, again, to take the focus off of us. It begins with the word your. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus wants us to pray in verse 9 that, our, that God's name would be hallowed and then that his kingdom would come. The way that God's name is hallowed is through the establishment of his kingdom here on earth. Now this takes us back to, I don't know, like 20 22, 23 weeks ago when we were talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus sets the whole thing up. How does Jesus set the whole Sermon on the Mount up? Well, he sets it up. He gives his, his followers this idea that, that his followers are meant to be pulling back a curtain and showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. What is the kingdom of heaven like? The world the way that the world knows this is by looking at followers of Jesus together. So we as a people, together in Christ, are a small window into the kingdom of heaven. We are not advancing the kingdom. God is. The kingdom is not expanding. It's established, but not yet in fullness. And we think about those things and we think to ourselves, well, that, that's not, that, that doesn't make any sense. We, we, I understand. But we should talk about the kingdom in the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom. He speaks of the kingdom as if it's already here, now, right now. And he talks about it as if it was still coming. And it will come. The fullness of God's kingdom will be established here on earth when, he, when Jesus returns. And this is why the prayer here is for his kingdom to come. That's for his return. It's a request for the fullness of God's plan to be established here on earth. Fullness of God's kingdom to be established here on earth. And even so, we find our, our purpose here, right? As people, as those who are created in God's image, who have been set apart for God's purposes, as his people, we find our purpose here. Your kingdom come is both wrapped up in realizing that God is bringing about something that only he can bring about, and this is not something that we can make happen, but it's an invitation into a big story that we've been caught up in. And we're responsible to live in a way that reveals this truth to the world. We're part of the story God is unveiling here on earth. 
So we pray your kingdom come because it shapes us into a people who are prepared to say, who are prepared to leave this space and go out into the world and say, come look and see what God is doing. Come look and see how God is moving. Come look and see at God fulfilling God's purposes through his people. Give up your empty self-pursuits, your small, piddly desires, and know God. And in this, we find then the importance of the local church. Why is the local church important? Why? Why does Jesus set apart and establish the local church? The way that our culture has painted the portrait of the local church is that it's a fun little organization where we get together, we pay our dues in a basket in the back, and we, we come here and we hope to receive some emotional high. Or we hope to move away from here with a little bit of extra energy to get through our week because our coworkers are jerks and because we don't like our life. But that's not what the church is. The local church doesn't exist for us as the individual, but for the fame of God's name. Hallowed be your name. The local church is a place where God's people fulfill God's purposes by demonstrating the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so that, that begs a, a, an incredible, or leads us to, I don't think it's begging the question, it leads us to a question, it leads us to a question that we have to be consistently asking ourselves as a body. Are we showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like? Are we showing, Buffalo City Church, are we showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like? That's an honest question that each of us needs to process and, and make, a serious, or make a serious consideration, take a serious consideration on. This is the first and most important question that we can ask ourselves. If we're saying your kingdom come, then we need to be answering the question, are we showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like? What, what does that mean? What does it mean to show the world what the kingdom of heaven is like? I think Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. This is incredibly fundamental because at the individual level, we have to believe what is said here in this text if we are ever to show the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. Peter writes this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does that mean? A chosen race is not an ethnicity. A royal people is not a kingly job. A holy nation isn't a people group who stand within and share common borders. All of these things are summed up in what Peter says at the end of that list, a people for his own possession. They show the richness of belonging to Christ. God's people shows the richness to the world of what it means to belong to Christ. Chosen by God, handpicked, set apart, royalty, sons and daughters of the King, the Most High God, and access to God, the ability to step in His presence and speak with Him through the shed blood of Jesus. A group of people who share something in common that runs so much deeper than blood, and genes, and DNA, and things that physically comprise us. All of these things are our identity in Christ. Why? 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's it. That's what it means to show the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. God's people, God's children, set apart, chosen by God for God's purposes, made into royalty, adopted into his family, given irrevocable access to him, placing in us as his people a commonality that's more in common than anything that has ever existed, that is far greater than any earthly heritage that we have, the spirit of Christ. Does this describe who we are? Does this describe who we believe that we are? Are we showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like? And the beauty of this is that this is God's work, not our work. Our identity in Christ, we don't do anything to get it. It is freely given to you by grace. So, to each of you, are you living in light of the fact, in the light of certainty that you are chosen by God and handpicked for his purposes? Or are you someone who struggles in feeling worthless or like God has rejected you? Are you living in light of the understanding that you are royalty, a son or daughter of the Most High God, the King of the universe? Are you struggling to feel like you have little or no worth or value in your day-to-day? Are you living in light of the fact that God has given you access to him and is intimately acquainted with every single detail of your life? Or are you living like God has abandoned you? Are you living like the Spirit of Christ is a great unifying agent that brings you closer together with those who also have trusted Christ? Or are you living like the people on your left and your right this morning are relationships that you can throw away and dip in and out of whenever you want to because they're not the same age as you or they're in a different season of life or in a different socioeconomic class? And as a church, we must make the analysis Are we showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like? This isn't my job exclusively. This isn't church church leadership's job exclusively. Our job is to equip you to do this. We must partner together and show the world. The Christian life cannot be lived in isolation or casual engagement. It is a sold-out, radical, faithful, joyful, ongoing expression that you've been plucked out of a dark kingdom where you are rotting, broken, decaying, and set into a kingdom of warmth and love and wholeness and perfection and light because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of the newness of life that you've been given. I don't feel like that, you say. I don't, I don't feel like that. I'm hurting right now. You must live in the hope that the hurt that you're feeling, the pain that you're feeling right now will be over in less than a lifetime. You must pray your kingdom come because in doing so you take the focus off both you and the here and now. And there's one clear practical result of praying this. It's engagement in the context of the local church. Now when I make statements like that, eyes roll in the back of the head and, and you say, of course you want that to happen. When I was in college, I heard a speaker say this in a campus organization. He said this, Standing in a garage doesn't make me a car, and going to church doesn't make me a Christian. 
This is a, this is, that statement, that's a beautiful example of a culture of individualism that has reduced the body of Christ to a mindless, joyless, man-centered, godless organization that only exists for emotional highs and a point, a point to attendance, fog machines, flashing lights, whatever, as the work of God. Because that's, if that's what we are as a church, we should all go home right now. We should all go home right now. That's a partial truth. There's a partial truth, and, and I don't even know if I believe that there is such a thing as a partial truth. Standing in a garage doesn't make me a Christian, and going to church doesn't make me a Christian. That's, that's true, in a sense. I don't earn becoming a Christian. But that statement is forming us into a people who are enticed by the world with such consistency that we don't know our right hand from our left. You're certainly not saved by going to church. Absolutely, absolutely not. Don't get me wrong. Paul says very clearly to the Ephesians, you're saved by grace through faith. This is a gift of God. Your work, your activities, your discipline, that can't save you. It cannot save you. But by making a statement like standing in a garage doesn't make me a car and going to church doesn't make me a Christian, by making a statement like that, we're providing evidence that we have no idea what we were saved from, for, and to. We're saved from sin and death. We're saved for God's purposes, and we're saved to live according to his commands. And if every little thing in this world keeps us from, from worshiping together as a local body, you're saying the statement that you're saying in here, when you read the Lord's Prayer, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, when you say your kingdom come, you're not saying your kingdom come. You're saying my kingdom come. And you're retreating into your own kingdom at the expense of your, pur- your purpose to show the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. To proclaim, as Peter says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You can only have one purpose and it's to make the name of God famous. And as his favored, as his royal child, you're showing the world what the kingdom is like. That's who we are as the local church. Are we showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like? The next statement Jesus makes is, your will, being, your, your will be done. And in many similarities between your kingdom come, your will be done. But the kingdom carries this sense of God's grand plan. The establishment of what's going on here in history. But the phrase, your will be done, is an acknowledgement that God's plan will come to fruition. It will come about in God's way, even in the smallest of details. This isn't just taking and redeeming a bunch of garbage into making it what he wants at the big level, but even at the microscopic level, God is achieving everything that he wants to achieve. He's sovereign over even the way it all happens. And so when we look at events going on around us, we look at shootings, we look at hurricanes, we look at floods, we look at political upheaval in our world, we know that even in the way that everything is coming about, God is orchestrating it all for the fame of his name. Does that make sense? Not to my mind it doesn't. But we pray your will be done as an affirmation 
that we know that God's will will ultimately be done in every single area of every single thing that has existed, every single thing that has happened. But God doesn't tell his followers to pray that temporary suffering will be eliminated, but that God's will will be done on earth. And this is a prayer for a particular action to take place. This is an open acknowledgement that all of God's purposes will be fulfilled according to God's plan. And then he says this, on earth as it is in heaven. And this is where the request ends. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that heaven and earth would meet. Jesus wants his disciples to remain fixed on the future, understanding that fuller life awaits them. But to continue to be his ambassadors in the here and now on earth. And this Throughout history, this this phrase single-handedly has kept from a lot of incorrect statements being made. Some people say, boy, if heaven is so great, if what's coming so great, why don't I just, I want to go there now. I want to be there now. I hope to die and enter into eternity. If heaven is so wonderful, I hope to, hopeful, is so wonderful, I hope to get there sooner. And this is a great tension. The answer to that question is no, we don't talk like that. We must be aware of what's coming and that it is greater than anything we can imagine here on earth, but God has a purpose for us in the here and now. And that's to use us to communicate who he is in a world that is in desperate need of him. And we're not going to live for ourselves. We're not here to do that. We're not here to get things and do things the way we want to do them. We're here to welcome people into a big story, to acknowledge a God who is far greater than we are, We're here to invite people into a relationship with God so that he can give them, like he's given us, an identity and a purpose that is far greater than anything, anything that this world can offer them. That identity and purpose is to know him and to make him known. So in conclusion then this morning, in conclusion, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've asked this question ad nauseum. Are we showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like? If you don't walk away from anything, if you're hearing anything that I've said this morning, walk away knowing that we need to be asking ourselves this question. Are we showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like? And the question that I want to follow that up with is, what if we were? What if we were? What if this body was sold out on showing the Jamestown community the love of Jesus? What if we were all committed to that, together, unified in that? How do we do that? Every single one of us needs to make that determination. How much of our day, our energy, our resources is dedicated to self? Maybe you've said, I've made my life about helping others. Wonderful. Is that backed by the gospel? Is helping others a gospel that you're preaching? In helping others, what gospel are you preaching? Prosperity? Health, a realization of a good life here on earth, all of those are empty. Pitily pathetic desires that can be filled with temporary realities. The way that you help people is to exist for others and to give them Jesus. 
This is not just for unbelievers, but believers too. If you've trusted Christ, it's, it's good. It's all good. Everything, is, everything that you need has been given to you, but you need more of Him. You need to grow in your desire for God. Sometimes we make our purpose to help others, but it's coming from a defective place of promoting temporary solutions that leave people cemented in their problems. Sometimes it's coming from a place where we're promoting defective solutions and it's leaving people in a defective kingdom. A kingdom that's found in avoiding suffering, a kingdom that's found in getting stuff, a kingdom that's founded on finding temporary peace or pleasure, but the kingdom of heaven is none of these things. It's seen clearly in the life of Jesus. This is all seen clearly in the life of Jesus. Jesus, who we are striving to be like, and whose likeness God is shaping us, came to earth, left the perfect place at God's right hand, took on flesh, flesh that felt pain, flesh that could be tempted, flesh that could die. And yet he fixed his eyes on the fame of God's name and said, I'm going to make everything I am about. Hallowed be your name and your kingdom come and your will be done. Through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he has made a way for us, for you and I to be God's children, to be royalty, to have access to God without exception. At every single moment of every single day, we can go to God, our Father, and plead because we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Jesus, make an analysis. You're not a Christian because you're an American. You're not a Christian because you show up here on a Sunday morning. You must trust Jesus with all that you are. You must turn from your sin and place your faith in him. If you have not trusted Jesus, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, and God has extended to you life in Christ. And what you need to do is turn away from that sin and trust Jesus to deal with it and live a spirit-empowered, committed life to him. And friend, if you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus, but you're being deceived and retreating regularly into your own kingdom, living small, living in small, pathetic desires, hopping from one shallow well to the next, scratching at gold mines with your fingernails. What you need is more of God. This is why we exist church. This is why we exist church. To give our community Jesus and to give each other more of Jesus This is what it means to be disciples who make disciples. Finally then, obviously this is embedded with the prayer that Jesus tells his disciples to pray. It all begins with prayer. This is why Jesus tells his disciples to pray this. If you are not praying, you are not following Jesus. That's what the text says. Verse 7, and when you pray, there's no allowance for, made for the follower of Jesus who does not pray. And if you, your desires, if your desires will remain fixed on you, if you don't incorporate prayer, this prayer in particular, into your life. But if you seek to know God through his word, and then the power of the Spirit, pray. 
God, will grow your desires to hallow his name, to see your desires only met in him, to see his kingdom come, and to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.